Thanks for listening to this week's message. If you're blessed by this podcast, please subscribe. Once you do, you'll be able to stay up to date with all our latest messages. In this special message by Pastor James Cadiz, we look at the attack on the family and its prophetic implications for today. Let's jump into it. You know, I was sharing with the body this morning about how uh, the enemy from the very beginning has always a desire to attack the family, right? And um, in case you don't know, uh, the Bible is riddled with people that have dysfunctional families, right? Uh, You can read about it all in all. And one of the things I really love about the Bible is the Bible is very good at telling us the good, the bad, and the extremely ugly. You know what I mean? It's not like social media. Social media, you put the best face on, right? I mean, I know people personally that will put up a picture of themselves on social media and I go, dude, you look really attractive in that photo. That's not the way you look in real life. You know, and that's what makeup and Photoshop and all that other nonsense does. You know, the filters and all that kind of thing. And everybody does that. I mean, listen, people always put the best of themselves on social media. You know it, I know it, right? They put up the beautiful 360 degree sunset while the candlelight is in the background and their dinner table is right there. They show the, you know, the selfie of the happy husband and wife. They don't show the argument that happened in the car on the way over to the dinner, right? They don't show the fact that they're on the brink of divorce coming home, right? And when people put up pictures on social media, you don't ever see them put up a picture of, hey, everybody, look, these are my recent divorce papers. You know, people don't do that. They always put up their very best. And I think that that's why social media can be so dangerous and why it can be so discouraging if you don't have the proper perspective. You know, the the trap is we look at what people post and we think, man, my life is not that way. I don't have a smooth marriage like that. I don't go out to nice dinners all the time. I don't have this. I don't have that. I mean, listen, it's gotten to the point now where it's so bad. You ready for this? Silicon Valley, this is where you see this a lot. People don't actually go on vacations anymore. You know what they actually do? They tell everybody they're going on vacation, they stay home, play video games, and then they hire somebody to take photos that they shoot in a studio under a green screen type of a thing, and they insert those photos in wherever it is that they say they're gonna go for that time. And so throughout the course of that time, overnight they put up pictures, hi, look at me, I'm in Fiji. Hi, look at me, I'm in Egypt. Hi, look at me, I'm in Africa. You know, and uh, you've got even the safari pictures that show up and everybody comes back and they say, how was your vacation? Oh, it was fabulous, you should have seen what I've seen, it was great. And truth be told, they were getting, you know, getting their high score going on on Frogger at home. You know what I mean? Whatever it is. But that's the point. And so it's gotten to that point. We've kind of gotten to the place where things are fake. People are fake. No one's real. No one's genuine anymore. No one tells it the way it is. No one ever puts up a real face because we've been taught to be that way. And so when you look at social media, you get discouraged because you think that's not my life. It's the life I wish I had. But man, I don't have that life. It's not really, oh man, and this will look at this isn't going right. When in reality, if I really, really want a good perspective on what life is really like, go into the Bible. Because the Bible will show you men that God used who were extraordinarily jacked up, right? Think about it. Abraham, look at Abraham. Abraham, this guy had a wife that was so beautiful that he was paranoid that the king was going to kill him. You guys remember that, right? So what does he do? He tells the king, hey, that that ain't my wife. That's my sister. And the king says, yeah, no problem. You know what? I'm going to take her then. And Abraham says, okay, it's all good. It's his wife. I'll just leave it there. 
The king goes to bed at night before he does anything with the woman. And God says, you don't touch her or I'm going to touch you. And the king goes back and he rebukes the, the king, the pagan king. He goes back to Abraham and he says, what's wrong with you? Right? And if you don't think that's dysfunctional enough, how about the fact that God makes him a promise? He says, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a child, a special child, and your wife's going to bear him, and it's going to be a wonderful thing, and he's going to be the called and anointed child. And so time goes by, and they go, nothing's happened. So the wife says, well, you know, honey, I don't think anything's going to happen with me. My body's getting old. Why don't you go and have sexual relations with my handmaiden, and then you can have that child, and we'll call that child our child. And Abraham doesn't say, honey, that's ungodly. How dare you even have a thought of that? No. He goes, yeah, baby, okay, I'll take one for the team. <laughs> know what I'm saying? And he goes and he has sex with her. He has a little, you know, he has a baby. We call him Ishmael, right? You remember? And that was the start of the war between the Arabs and the Israelis. That's where we get it from. That's why you never should call an Egyptian man like me an Arab, okay? Because we preceded the Arabs, just so that you understand that little piece of information, just so that you know, if you want to insult an Egyptian, right, then go to them and say, hey, you're an Arab, aren't you? That would be like going to a Salvadorian and calling him a Mexican, or going to a Mexican and calling him a Salvadorian. Hey, bro, y'all are alike, y'all look the same. Or a Puerto Rican and telling them they're a Tijuanero. You know what I mean? Doesn't work, doesn't work right? So here's the reason why, because Hagar, where was she from? Egypt. So if she was from Egypt, the Arabs came from her. Well, anyway, we'll leave that alone. I just got on a little soapbox there. A lot of dysfunction. How about Lot? Lot was pretty dysfunctional, wasn't he? You know the story of Lot. Lot's hanging out in his home, one of the most ungodly places around. He's got guests. They're angels. He doesn't really know that. They're just men that are coming to visit. He wants to be hospitable. Some homosexuals are knocking on the door saying, hey, we want to sodomize these, these guys. And he says, no, this is my home. I'm going to protect them. Take my daughters. Rape them. That's a pretty jacked up dad, isn't it? And his wife was a real pillar of the community, if you know what I mean. <laughs> pillar of salt. Oh, that's good. <laughs> we have it all over the Bible. I could tell you story after story after story, and it's quite encouraging to me because when you see the imperfections expressed in people's lives and you see the things that are just completely messed up, you know, I shared all of this with the church this morning, and it was a different premise than the premise I'm carrying to you right now, but it is interesting. It goes a long way to demonstrate the fact that from the beginning of creation, Adam and Eve were pretty dysfunctional. You ever heard of the term raising Cain? You know where that came from, right? Okay. But from the beginning of creation, the enemy has always done what? He's attacked the family. And why has he attacked the family? He's attacked the family because if the family infrastructure can be attacked, then the spiritual mechanism that drives the individual from within the family fails. And if that fails, then everybody fails. Okay. That's why we can have such a disgraceful moniker in a state like New York where we allow these awful people to pour water on police officers while they're doing their job. When I was a kid, if that would have happened, they'd have got their teeth, their teeth kicked in. And they probably should have. Forgive me for saying that. But it's the truth. But the problem is, 
is you have fathers that don't care about their children enough to discipline them. They're not even around. You have mothers that don't care because oftentimes, and sometimes you do have mothers that care, but if they don't have the support infrastructure, God forbid they can't do anything to help. The fabric of society sits within the, within the family structure being intact. I'm going to make a statement and I can say this and I will tell you it's an enigma. I was raised with a perfect childhood. Not too many people can say that. And my dad heavily invested in our family and in us and he disciplined us. Quick example of how that works for society. We are on our way home from church one day. Shared this with the fellowship earlier today. We were on our way home from church one day. This is, I was a little kid at this point. Well, I was a young kid. I was never a little kid, if you know what I mean. I was a young kid. And we were, we were on our way home, and it was just me, my dad, that had, had gone, and I was probably, I don't know, fourth, fifth grade. I don't even remember. I still remember the name of the officer that was involved in this whole situation. And as we get home, we turn the corner, and it's kind of like around the same type of sunlight situation as it is right now. Kind of dusk is beginning to settle in, and, you know, sunset and everything. And we see the strobes from the police cars around the corner. And as we go to turn the corner, we see a pretty big scene. We see the town drunk, or the community drunk is what we'll call him, in the backseat of a car with his handcuffs on and he's yapping. And, and then we see my brother and his buddies being detained, my older brother and his buddies being detained by the police. Uh-oh, something's up. So my dad gets out of the car and he's as hot as could be. He is mad, 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 mad. And he goes to the police officer and goes, what's going on? And the police officer tells us the story that my brother and his friends thought it would be a really fun idea to take a bunch of Piccolo Pete's, you know, the ones that go, those ones and put them in the in the porch of this drunk guy's house and light about four or five of them up simultaneously and start screaming you're a drunkie you're a drunkie you're a drunkie and he came out with two full bottles of 40 ounce beers in his hand and he was so drunk he thought he was throwing it at the kids instead he threw it across the street in through the window of the owners of the neighbor's home did a bunch of damage alcohol all over the floor the whole deal ugly 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 so he's going to jail for the property damage, all the other stuff. And my dad gets out of the car with his heavy Middle Eastern accent. What is going on, you know? And the policeman goes to explain what's going on. And my brother cuts off the policeman and he says, please officer, please take me to jail. <laughs> he puts out his hands, begging the cop, take me to jail, please. You don't understand. As my dad, the steam is coming from his head at this point. You don't understand. My dad's going to beat me. He's going to take me in the house and he's going to beat me. Probably not the thing you should tell a police officer, right? And I still remember the name of the officer. <laughs> to this day, I know him personally. And he says, he's going to beat me. This guy, my daddy's going to beat me. Please, officer, take me to jail. I don't want to get beat by my dad. And my dad looks straight at the police officer and he says, believe me, Mr. Police Officer, I'm not going to beat my son. I'm going to kill him. <laughs> Seriously, no joke, no joke. Law enforcement officer laughs a little bit, pushes the kid towards my dad. And my dad tells him to get inside the house and my brother's crying to my mom and all that stuff. And my dad is like, I'm going to, in Arabic, you know, it's a phrase in Arabic, I'm gonna smash you up like ground beef. It's, it does, it's not as bad in Arabic as it is in English, okay? Just so that you know. And he says that, and as he's going in and that whole thing ends up happening, the police officer looks at my dad and he says this. He says, if every father was like you, my job would be a whole lot easier, right? 
the enemy seeking to attack the family. And now that the infrastructure of the family is being attacked, right? There is no recourse. Paul actually addresses that. He will talk about it at the end of Ephesians chapter 5. He will address it into chapter 6. And although we're not going to talk about that aspect of things, I wanted to bring this up as kind of a preface to demonstrate to you that right now, in case you haven't noticed, the attacks on the family have increased more than you've ever seen before. I've never seen it like I've seen it today. I never thought I would see the day, 26 years in ministry, that I would actually have to modify the bylaws of my church to say that marriage is in between one biological man and one biological woman. I never thought that I would have to modify those words into one biological man at birth and one biological woman at birth. The world is lost, you guys. Now, I'm not going to stand here and beat up the homosexual, transgender, the LGBTQ community because the bottom line is they are the way they are because they don't know Christ. And our obligation is to love them and hold them and care for them and bring them into hearing the gospel. And when they hear the gospel, they'll change. <laughs> you don't have to say anything to them. You don't have to show up with those dumb signs that say God hates you and all that. It's all a lie. But there is a targeted attack that's going on towards that community. The community of the, that's structured in the family, sorry, the family unit. There's a, a, a very concerted attack. And God says there's a solution. Now, not only do we have a solution, but I think he goes out of his way to warn us that in the last days, things are going to get even more difficult. The start of fixing the family problem is to fix the vertical problem, right? To fix the problem that exists between your relationship with God. Once your relationship with God gets fixed, all the other relationships are easy, right? Premarital counseling, it's the biggest thing. It's the number one issue that I bring up. You, there's two, premarital counseling is based on two very biblical principles. And that's the whole thing that I seek to drill in their minds and in their hearts. It's two principles and two principles only. You ready? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. And the second principle, love your neighbor as yourself, your wife or your husband classifying as the neighbor. If you cannot learn to love God more than you love your spouse, you will never have a successful marriage. If you cannot learn to love God more than you love your children, you will never have a successful uh, fatherhood or motherhood. The family will fail. Now here, earlier on in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is beginning to describe the fact that time is short. We're living in dark days. He's about to lay out for us the condition of society and how that condition is going to grow as time goes by. And it's going to culminate with a statement before he gives exhortations to husbands and wives, children and masters and fathers. But before any of that, he's going to provide to us an exhortation to be careful considering the times that we live in. So let's look and see what he says. We'll jump right at the beginning of chapter 5. 
He says this at the very beginning. He says, be you therefore followers of God as what? Dear children and walk in love as Christ also have loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. Well, very self-explanatory. I actually have a series that I did on the book of Ephesians. If you want to hear the description of these words at length and the mechanisms that drive the words of the Apostle Paul here, you can go online at calvarychapelsignalhill.com and you can listen to it. I'm sure Pastor Tom has got some archive studies from Ephesians where he does a phenomenal job. If he teaches it like he teaches anything else, you're going to get a good educated understanding of what's actually being said here. Uh, Very, very clear, right? But look what it goes on to say. He says, but fornication and all uncleanliness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving thanks for this, you know, that no whoremonger or unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words or because of these things. Things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not you therefore partakers of them. So what does he say? People will read this and they'll say, um, when he talks about no whoremongers are going to enter the kingdom of heaven, he thinks that the apostle Paul is saying, if a Christian becomes a whoremonger, he's not going to go to heaven. Well, if a Christian is a Christian, they're not going to be a whoremonger. So what he's saying is he's saying, do not even allow these things to be named among you. In other words, as you are Christians, you shouldn't even allow anybody to potentially come to the conclusion that you are that person. In other words, you cannot be a Christian and a womanizer at the same time. You cannot be somebody who says, I fear God, and yet be concerned with the thoughts of man. You can't. So if you love God with all of your heart, your mind, and your soul, bottom line is, you're not going to be a partaker of those things. Why? Because God governs and regulates the thought process in your mind and in your heart. He teaches you. This is why I tell husbands and wives to love God more than you love one another. Because if I can learn to love God more than I love my wife, then my wife never has to worry about whether or not I'm going to be faithful to her. She never has to worry about anything that I'm going to say or that I'm going to do or anything like that. And one of the things that I learned very, very quickly from having a relationship with God that I value more than my wife's is that God has always been faithful to warn me at the right time that I might cherish and value and respect the woman that God has put in my life. One of the areas as a newly married man that I learned very quickly was a warning place I'll share it with you, kind of a personal thing. Very beginning in my marriage, when me and my wife got into our very first disagreement, we'll call it disagreement, right? (laughs) Police didn't come over that time. But no, no, I'm just kidding. No, I'm I'm joking. We had our very first disagreement. Part of me was kind of hurt by the whole thing. I don't even remember what it was. I really don't. But I was bothered by the fact that my wife did not so easily acquiesce to my point of view. And I was pretty offended by that. I was kind of hurt by that whole thing. She's my wife. She's supposed to agree with me. Was my thought process. So we were at a bit of an impasse that morning and we went on our merry ways. We prayed still, we went on our merry ways. I'm in the parking lot 
of a grocery store, and a woman comes my way. Now, mind you, uh, this chiseled body, let me tell you, okay, <laughs> is not the world's definition of attractive, okay? I'm in a mobility scooter, and a woman comes to me and starts speaking with me somewhat flirtatiously. My mind was a little dumbfounded by the whole thing. And the one thought that went through my head was the same thought that went through Joseph's head. I'm not going to do this to the Lord. I'm not going to even host the conversation. But the prevalent thought was, get out, get out, get out, get out of there, get out of there, get out of there, get out of there. So I'm in my little mobility scooter, and she's come my way, and she's saying all these nice things. Goes, say bye. Don't want to talk to you. Ah! I take off with a little scooter. No joke. That thing goes like nine miles an hour. It's fast. It's really fast. I see her in the rearview mirror holding her bag going, huh? you know? Here's the one thing I learned. Never went home to my wife and shared it with her in the sense of uh, some lessons I learned. I don't have to necessarily go home and talk about. But one of the things that God taught me right away is anytime you have a disagreement with your wife, you better be on more guard than you ever are. Because the enemy will send somebody when you are at your most vulnerable place to run you over. Now I run them over. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm just, I'm joking. I'm joking. But the picture that we draw from that is that if my relationship with the Lord is intact, he's always going to warn me about these things. He's going to speak to me. He's going to talk to me about it. Now, what does this have to do with end times? Well, if you have a close relationship with God, then you have to know that his return is around the corner. If his return is around the corner, then maybe we ought to be paying attention to the exhortation that Paul is giving us here in Ephesians. Look what he goes on to say. It gets very interesting here. Don't be partakers with them. For you were sometimes darkness, but now are you light in the Lord. So walk as children of the light. I wish I could describe to you what is happening here in the Greek language. It's very poetic in nature. But what he's basically saying is he's saying, you used to hang out in the dark and now you've come out of the dark. So you need to live like you've come out of the dark. And here's the thing that he continues to reinforce throughout all of his letters. He does it in Romans. He introduces the concept to us in Romans, right? He does it in 1 and 2 Corinthians. He does it in Galatians. He does it in Ephesians. He does it in Philippians. He does it in Colossians. He does it in, in every writing virtually in Hebrews. One of the things that he reminds us of is this, okay? It comes with the imposition of a question. Does who you are determine what you do or does what you do determine who you are? Does who, you, is, does who you are determine what you do, or does what you do determine who you are? The world says what you do determines who you are. You steal, thus you're a thief. You lie, thus you're a liar. The Bible says that's not the truth. The Bible says you lie and steal because you're a sinner. But once you come to know the Lord, you become a saint. And the fact that you are a saint and are in Christ now determines how you act. Went home to my dad one day, walked in the living room, stood right in front of him, about three feet away from him, and I called him by his first name. Hi, Sammy! Before the E, and his name is Samuel, before the E in Sammy could come out, the back of his hand was on my mouth. 
You don't call me that. Don't disrespect me. I'm your dad. You say dad in Arabic. You say Baba. You don't say anything else. Yeah, but my buddy calls his dad by his first name all the time. And my dad looks at me and just goes for it. I don't care about your dumb friends. <laughs> I'm not your friend. I'm your father. Yeah. Everybody knew. Everybody knew that I was Samuel's son. Every single person that was in my dad's circles knew that I was his child. You want to know why? Because the fruit of that man's labor established my identity as his son. You are in Christ. You are Christ's. My grandfather, Saad, spent 65 years in the ministry, most of the time in Egypt. Very animated man. Preacher of the gospel. Spoke better English than virtually anybody in this room. He spoke the queen's English. <laughs> spoke perfect Arabic. Very much like me. You hear me speak English, you'd have no idea I could speak another language. You hear me speak Arabic, you'd have no idea I could speak English. Just the way it is. I've been known to be confused for a Mexican in Ensenada a few times too. <laughs> It's a beautiful language, man. I'm sorry. I just love the Spanish language. Anyway, I've had many people that my, my grandfather has discipled over the years come to me and say, you're the spitting image of your grandfather. Not in your body type. My grandfather was six foot four like me, but he's a very thin man. But they said, my voice is like him. My inflections are like him. People that spend a lot of their life sitting under his teaching all tell me, you are your grandfather. Well, you're Christ's. When you came to know Christ, you were no longer a sinner. The Bible says you've been made a saint. And the fact that you are a saint now regulates how you live your life. You are his child. And if you are his child, you better act like his child. You don't walk in the darkness anymore. God pulled you out of the darkness and he put you in the light. So be as children of the light. You're no longer a child of darkness. Some of us think we're still children of darkness. And he lies to us. He condemns us, all of that. You know how many times people tell me, James, the rapture is going to happen soon, isn't it? Yeah, I believe it is. Am I going to be left behind? They all ask me that. So are you a child of God? Yes, I am. You're not going to be left behind. Don't walk as somebody who's not a child of God, who's scared about being left behind. You're a child of God. Be excited about it. You're his children. You should be excited. He's coming, right? Think about this. Look what he says. Here's a parenthetical he brings to us in chapter, in verse nine. He says, for the fruit of the spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and in truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And look what he says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, for whatsoever doth make manifest is light. In other words, what he says is this. He says, you should have nothing to do with all that garbage that's out there. 
Jesus Christ is coming for you right now. He's on his way. Live like it. Don't flirt around with the world. Don't go back and say, hey, you know what? This is okay. That's okay. I'm going to mess with this. I'm going to mess with that. Don't do that. You've got a God that's coming back for you. And whether or not you want to admit it, evidence around the world is pointing to it more than it ever has. I've never, ever thought in a million years I would see the things going on in Israel. When I started studying the Bible 26 years ago, we would be lucky if we had one event take place every six months in Jerusalem. Especially on the Temple Mount, where the epicenter of it is all. Now, we've got 50, 60, 70 news stories every single day coming out of the Temple Mount alone. People say, well, that's because the news is different and we get everything delivered differently. Hogwash. Baloney. We're seeing it happen. It's before our very eyes. It's taking place. People used to call me a whack job. They would call me a kook when I said, I'm not worried about ISIS as much as I am about Iran. I'm not worried about ISIS as much as I'm worried about the presence of Iran in Syria with Russia. And people said, it's never happened in world history. You're crazy. It'll never happen. And I say the same thing. It's like evil Knievel. It'll never happen until it happens. Right? Remember that guy? You're dumb. Jump off that ramp. You're going to kill yourself. No one's ever done that. It's happened. Now you can't say it's never happened before, right? Same thing. Just because it's never happened doesn't mean it's not going to happen, especially when God's word says it's going to take place. I'm super excited. I'm starting the book of Ezekiel in two Sundays from now. And I'm telling everybody this. If you've never had me, you never sat with me going through a major prophet, you're going to want to go through this one. You want to know why? Because Ezekiel is talking about stuff that's happening at this very moment. At this very moment, things are setting up. And he's talking about things that are going to happen around the corner. Did you know that there's nothing that has to take place biblically in order for God to rapture the church? I kind of hope we get raptured while I'm behind the pulpit. I think that'd be a cool way to go, right? But one thing's for sure, none of you, none of you want to get caught right and dirty. None of you want to get in that place where the Lord comes back for you and you're getting caught messing around with the fruits of darkness, right? Well, you're going to get raptured. Sure you are, but you're going to be a little embarrassed, going to be a little embarrassed. Look what it goes on to say. Wherefore, he saith, awake. Ready for this? Awake thou that sleepeth. Awake thou that sleepeth, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. In other words, wake up all of you guys that are knocked out. Wake up to find out what's going on. I play the drums we do three services in the morning, we do one in the evening, and for the three services in the morning, I play drums in the band. And so I told myself in between second and third service, I'm going to just close my eyes, I'm really tired, because I'm always up by four o'clock in the morning, Sunday morning, and always in the office by five, fifteen or so, and it's a very long day, and I typically am, I, I carry the day through, and most of the time when I go to bed Saturday night, it's about 2.30 in the morning. So it's a, it's a long day, right? 
So I tell myself, man, I'm going to drive out to San Jacinto. I'm going to just close my eyes between second and third service for about 10 minutes. And I tell my dad, dad, I'm going to close my eyes for a few minutes. And this little voice inside of me says, don't do it. Don't do it. If you do, you're not going to wake up in time. So I do it. I wake up and my dad is whistling and singing in my office, you know, and he's whistling and singing the second song. And I'm not up there because my worship leaders, Calvary time to them is on time, right? It's not like hey, Calvary time, bro, you know, 20 minutes late. No, we're on time. I feel like we, we need to respect people. If you, you take advantage of their time, you're not respecting them, right? So, yeah, and especially when a preacher is long-winded, <laughs> there ain't no respect there. So, I know, it's a problem for me. My soapbox. So I wake up during the middle of the second song. I'm like, oh my goodness. I walk out there embarrassed. I finish playing the second song and then go through the rest of the worship set. What an embarrassing moment. It was embarrassing. There was nothing good about that. Nothing. I think that's happening with the church right now. The things of God are going for it. The, t the clock is ticking. The people of God are moving. The world is changing around us. Things are happening. Things are changing. All kinds of things are happening. Lots of things are taking place that we never thought would ever happen. God is moving. Things are changing. The world is going in the direction that tells us that God is coming back for his church. And what are we doing? You're going to regret it. He's telling us to wake up. Stay awake. We go through this every time with people that we take on an Israel tour. We're hardcore when we go to Israel, right? We don't pamper people when we go to Israel. Don't get me wrong. They're in nice hotels, but the bottom line is they'll come back on their plane flight. They're, you know, they're in in the evening and we don't give them time to get over their jet lag. We tell them you're up at six o'clock in the morning, breakfast at 630 on the bus by seven. And they all tell me the same thing. Why? I was like, too much. I just want to sleep a couple of extra hours. And I have the talk with almost every one of them. I say, hold on for a second. Let me just explain something to you. In three weeks from now, when you're back home, or a month from now when you're back home, or two months from now back home, you're not going to say things like, I wish I slept in a little bit more. You're not going to say, I wish I slept in on the bus. You're not going to say, man, I just wish I got a few extra minutes of sleep. You're going to say things like, how could I be so stupid that I slept through that visit? How in the world could I have not? And so then everybody's all droopy-eyed and tired. <laughs> I hate you. You got to kind of have that attitude. They come back home and thank you, thank you, thank you. Right? Well, I'm here to tell you. Right? Wake up at 6, breakfast at 6.30, on the bus at 7. That's what's going on in the world right now. It's time. Jesus Christ is coming. Wake up. Let's not sleep through that, folks. And then this is what he says. This is how we wake up. Ready? Here's the command in the Greek. Again, present active imperative. He says this. He says, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. In other words, be careful in your walk with the Lord. Do not be sloppy about that walk. Be very, very careful. Be very careful. Take your time. Be genuine. Do not be sloppy in what you do. Be spiritually sober. 
We're going to talk about this in just a minute. He says what? Redeeming the time. In other words, walk carefully, understanding that you are redeeming the time while redeeming the time. Because what? The days are evil. Wherefore, in other words, keeping this in mind, be you not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Don't be the person that walks around completely clueless. Know what God's will for your life is. God's will for your life is for you to seek him, for you to love him, for you to walk with him. When the Lord comes back for his church, I want you to be the person that says, it's about time. I've been waiting. Instead of, oh my gosh, we're getting taken. Big difference between the two attitudes. Look what it goes on to say. And pay attention to this. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is access, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melodies in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. What is the message here? The message is this. The message is stay sober. Now, I'm not going to get into the big alcohol soapbox, okay? I'm, not, I'm just not going to do it. Because it's in between you and God whether or not you want to riddle your mind with something that's going to take you away from sobriety. But I am going to say this. Anybody who's recovering from drug addiction, including alcohol, will tell you the same thing, especially if they've been sober for a long time. They'll agree with this statement. Sobriety is not predicate upon the abstaining of drugs or alcohol. There are lots of people who have abstained from drugs or alcohol for a very, very, very long time and are not sober-minded. Sobriety is defined and predicated upon the principle that your mind is clear. Did you know that somebody could not be sober because they're so sleepy that they're not aware of their surroundings when they're driving a car? I could blow a point to one and be less or more sober than somebody who's very sleepy on the road. Sobriety speaks of a clarity of mind. You know the number one thing that'll take away a person's sobriety? I've done little interviews with this before. What's the number one thing? They say, oh, cocaine. It gets, you, it gets you high faster than anything. Oh, methamphetamine. Oh, alcohol. Oh, this. Oh, that. No. The number one thing that will take away your sobriety faster than anything, you ready for it? It's a three-letter word, sin. Sin will take away your sobriety faster than anything. And if you are walking with the Lord you are about as sober as sober gets because your eyes are open, your mind is clear, you're seeing everything completely as it should be. But if you are not walking with the Lord, your senses are dulled. And by the way, this principle applies in every context you can even think of, right? I'll give you one application of this. I spent a lot of years in Southeast Los Angeles County as a police chaplain, hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of hours in a police car, lots of time. One of my favorite things to do with rookies, especially rookies that love the Lord, was to teach them 
that the more sober-minded you are in your relationship with God, the easier time you're going to have finding a bad guy. One day we're in a very, very dull night. It's a Sunday night. Nothing ever happens on a Sunday night. There's no, you don't find crime. Oftentimes in Southeast LA on a Sunday night, gangsters are in bed. You know, no one's doing anything during that time. It's not a traditional party night. It's just, that's the way it is. And one of the rookies that I'm with says, okay, let's prove your theory. Let's see if you being close to God, you're about as close to God as I know. People call you God. Let's see if you can find something. I haven't been able to find anybody in a week. I haven't made a good arrest in a long time. Okay, I'll call your bluff. Then in my heart, I start panicking. Oh, God, please help me. I want to find something. You know, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. We go down the street. We turn a corner. God tells me, that car that's got a broken taillight, stop it. It's dangerous. Stop it. I'll go to my buddy. I say, hey, bro, pull that car over right now. Pull that car over. So he pulls the car over. He says, come out armed. This is what I tell him. I go, call for a back. Don't approach the vehicle without a back. I don't know anything. I mean, the guy could have Disneyland uh, cookies in the car for all I care. I don't know. I'm feeling a little nervous, but I know God's voice. So he calls for a back. Happens to be a unit about 30 feet away from us. He comes up. And he's like, why'd you call for a back, man? This thing looks fine. He walks right up to the car, little short guy. He walks right up to the car and he looks and he sees a guy who's sitting right there. There's an automatic weapon that's right by him. He comes out, guns are blazing, get your hands up, calls for units, gets over there. By the time we're done, they pull three kilos out of the car. And everybody, hey, that's a good stop. Man, no rookies ever pulled that much out of a car. You know, that's great. That's great. And, you know, this guy's like, yeah, mm-hmm. he looks at me and I go, yeah, he did a good job. I don't know how he, I mean, he just, he, he got it. He knew what he was doing, all that kind of thing. Bravo, bravo. And I told him, I said, keep your eyes on the Lord. And you'll be that kind of a policeman. He didn't really listen to me. He actually became a a pretty drunk policeman and actually almost lost his job on on a few occasions right but there are guys that listen to me and were crazy scary really good knew they were sharp they knew what was going on they could find dope anywhere they could i mean they were good solid cops didn't lie on police reports didn't do any of that kind of thing but that applies in every area of your life guys if you're a woodworker Having sobriety that comes from walking with God will help you be better at that. If you take out trash for a living, that work is very honorable. Imagine if we didn't have people doing that for a living. If that's your job and you're sober-minded with Christ, stand by. You'd be the best one there. You work in a warehouse, you'd be the best warehouse employee over there. You're a lawyer, watch out. You'll be a dang shark. You'll smoke them all around you. We have a kid that goes to our church. I remember before he even became an attorney, came to me, what do you think? Should I do this? Yeah, bro, just seek the Lord. It's a good idea. You'll be a great attorney. Years later, he represented me on a case. Beat the snot out of the church. No, no, I'm just kidding. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. But he's a sharp attorney. Why? Because he loves the Lord. Whatever it is that you do in life, your pastor... You'll be the best you can be. 
if your mind and your heart is sober. Right? Listen, sobriety is dependent upon where you stand with Christ. And if you are adequately sober, you're going to understand two things, two very important things based on what we read in Ephesians tonight. As a sober-minded person, you're going to understand Jesus Christ is coming back soon. You're going to understand it. You're going to know it that you know it. You know the other thing you're going to understand very quickly? You're going to understand very quickly that you don't have a lot of time left. And if you don't have a lot of time left, it's time to work like you've never worked before, right? You're running out of time. And some people tell me, well, James, what if I work super hard and the Lord never comes back by the end of my life? I said, if you work super hard and the Lord doesn't come back by the end of your life, then you will be looked at by everybody else as somebody who lived a life that's extraordinary. You want an example of that? Look at the life of Chuck Smith. Look at the life of Billy Graham. Look at the life of anybody else who dedicated themselves to believing the fact that Jesus Christ was coming back soon for his church. And they allowed that knowledge to drive them in a way that could be driven by nothing else. It couldn't be driven by money. It couldn't be driven by people. It couldn't be driven by friendships. It couldn't be driven by anything. It was driven by the Spirit of God with the knowledge that he had no time left. And by the time he died, the day he died, my goodness, they put the flag at half staff at the Israeli consulate in the United States and at the Knesset the day he died. Right? It's because he made a difference. It's because he made a difference. Lives were changed. It's the difference between living ordinary and ready, extraordinary. And every single one of you in these last days have an opportunity to live extraordinary. And when the trumpets sound and Christ comes for his church, you'll be ready. There's nothing better than that understanding. Amen? Thanks for listening and being a part of this week's podcast. Before you go, I'd like to invite you to visit our website, hopeforourtimes.com, and check out the many resources we have to offer. On our website, we have books, DVDs, and daily news articles that will always keep you up to date on the times we're living in. If you'd like to see the video version of this week's podcast, you can find us at Hope For Our Times on YouTube. God bless, and we'll talk to you next time.